Welcome to the World of Emotions and the Emotion Focus podcast, a series all about emotions, how they work for us, how seemingly sometimes they don't work for us, and how we might better understand that and possibly be able to do something about it. I'm Lou Cooper. I'm your host, and I'm based in Nam in Melbourne, Australia. And this is a special episode to mark Emotion Awareness Day, the 2nd of June, 2023. I'm joined in this series by people from around the globe who have dedicated most of their professional lives to the exploration of emotions. Everything that you hear on this series is informed by emotion theory and emotion-focused therapy. And for this special Emotion Awareness Day episode, I'm joined by the primary developer of emotion-focused therapy, Dr. Leslie Greenberg, who's Professor Emeritus at York University in Toronto in Canada. And I thought it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about the origins of emotion-focused therapy and what it was that led Leslie Greenberg to try and work out how to change emotion with emotion. Thank you for joining me on this day, Les. My pleasure. Yeah, emotions have, I think I'm correct in saying, dominated your professional life. Before we go into how we change emotions, I wonder what it was about emotions that drew you in. Well, there's quite a narrative because I have a master's degree in engineering and then changed to psychology. And of course, engineering is not exactly an emotion-based study, let's say. It's kind of the antithesis. Isn't it, right? Uh, and I think maybe being surrounded by mainly men who were non-emotional always made me feel isolated and different because I clearly had emotions, but I had no support for them. However, I was very uh, mathematically and scientifically inclined, wanted to become a nuclear physicist, and I sort of worshipped at the altar of logical analysis, let's say. When I was 18 years old or so, I have a diary in which I drew a diagram of a sign, a set of a wave, sort of sine curve, if people know what that is, but a kind of set of waves up and down. And I drew a straight line through those. And I wrote, I'd much prefer to live my life on a straight line than to suffer the ups and downs of emotional turmoil. And emotional turmoil probably was most related to girlfriends and relationships. So I started off very rationally and really was trying to understand the meaning of life through my intellect. But I couldn't ignore that I had emotion. And so slowly I arrived at emotion kind of intellectually. I was reading, impressed with existential philosophers and so on. So 
there was a writer, Polonier, who wrote about tacit knowledge, essentially that we know more than we can say. And this impressed me because in my final year of engineering, I solved a math problem that no one in my class solved. And I didn't know how I knew how to solve it. So I became very impressed with the idea that I knew more than I could say. And this eventually led me into psychology to try to understand this. And that led me to basically get to emotion is the, an important source of this personal knowledge or this tacit knowledge. Were you wanting to change some of your emotions? I mean, was, is that the initial driver? Well, I think the initial driver was I wanted to control my emotions, not have them, yes, because they were distressing. It wasn't a matter of changing them. It was a matter of regulating them or not having them. So it was a way of becoming a rational, logical being who wouldn't have emotions. So we have depictions of people like Spock in Star Trek and philosophers who tried to advocate being logical and not having emotions so that you would be in control. But basically, I guess my experience was that that just didn't work. But as a young man, I wasn't exactly brought up to express my emotions, to feel my emotions. Um, so it's a very hard question to answer as to what exactly drove me towards emotion. But some of it was that I was having a lot of emotions and I didn't know how to really make them work for me. So it's been a long journey towards your most recent book publication is titled Changing Emotion with Emotion. How did you get there? What was the path of research? Right. So, I mean, I entered psychology and I had had some young friends who we had always talked and listened to each other, which was sort of unusual. And that we, means we talked about our feelings, mainly about our girlfriends. And so when I came into psychology, I met Laura Rice. She was my mentor, and she was teaching about the power of empathy and the power of listening and understanding and the whole approach called person-centered or client-centered therapy. So this immediately rung a bell for me. I recognized that this was important to, I guess I'd always needed to be understood and not judged. And then what was being understood or what was most painful were probably emotions. Although the emphasis there was more on understanding people's meaning. I went into Gestalt therapy training, and there I saw, and this was in the 60s or the early 70s, there was a lot of things going on in the humanistic movement about expressing emotion. It was like, uh, let it all out. And not all of that was good, but there was something that impressed me about the power of emotion. And then in my own self-experience, I had difficulty crying, I had difficulty being angry. 
I wouldn't get angry, I would sulk. I was married, and I was married to a woman who had emotions and showed emotions, and the safer I felt in a relationship, the more able I was to go into my emotions. So that was all the personal experience. But then I was studying psychotherapy and how people change. And I started to see that when people got into their emotions, they did better in psychotherapy. And this was a whole starting a whole research path of how do we measure emotion and how does it work. But essentially, videotapes were very important. And the videotape is sort of like the microscope of psychotherapy research because you can actually study. And we saw that people who expressed their emotions seemed to benefit strongly from this much more than if they just talked about their emotions. So there was something about expressing emotion that was very important. Les, did you did you become your own experiment at that time? Well, in an informal sense, yes. I mean, when I allowed myself to feel and express the emotion the significance of whatever I was feeling emotional about was revealed to me, so to speak. I saw that that's what was important. So, you know, it's a little bit like when people have near-death experiences or very dangerous experiences, what passes before their eyes is what's really most important to them. Well, essentially, it was like that when... I really allowed myself to to sob or to weep. I saw how important what I was crying about was to me. I imagine that was life-changing. Yes, yes, it was. I think the first time I got angry at my wife was very life-changing. I wouldn't get angry because being angry meant I was out of control or I was actually being hurt, you know, and showing me anger was somehow a sign of uh, that I was vulnerable. So the first time I was actually able to express anger rather than sulk was really very significant. So we're talking about expressing anger in a way which was not aggressive, not harmful. Correct, correct. And that's an important distinction to make. So we subsequently, you know, discriminate between different kinds of anger. There's assertive anger or empowered anger. There's destructive anger. There's rejecting anger. So these are different kinds of anger. But one of them, the empowered anger, is very important. Yeah, so anger often sounds like it's bad and it's aggressive, but actually assertive anger is not. You can even call it I anger, I resent that you haven't been there for me for the last 10 days. I resent that you haven't paid attention to to me or something along that line. So standing up for yourself. Right, right. And usually anger goes with sadness. We don't only have anger, we also have sadness. 
sometimes both of them are there. One is not secondary to the other. I'm sad that you left me and I'm mad that you left me. Go together. And both of them need to be processed or dealt with. So how would you, I mean, you're talking about the expression of anger that is useful and healthy. Um, but if there's an, if there is anger, if someone is experiencing anger and expressing anger in a way which is not helpful, that's getting them into trouble, that is ruining their relationships, how can they change that emotion? I mean, you're suggesting that they can change that emotion with another emotion? Well, you see, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So these angers are often secondary angers, the ones that are destructive. So really, I'm hurt. I feel fear or I feel shame. This is very common among men. They often then express anger when they feel hurt and shame, but it can be with anyone. Um, So in that case, you're not changing the anger with another emotion. What you're doing is you're moving from the secondary anger, the reactive anger, towards the primary underlying feeling of shame or the underlying feeling of fear. Now we're at the core painful emotion. Now, in order to change that emotion, we want to help you have a new experience. So there we might even help you to have more empowered anger. So then the empowered anger changes the shame. So the basic idea is that we take you to your very gut feeling, to your primary emotion. Often that's obscured by other emotions. So we have to get past the secondary or defensive emotion that is protecting you. You know, your anger defends against your shame because your shame is painful. So we take you to your your primary emotion. Now, the majority of primary painful, core painful emotions have withdrawal tendencies in them, like fear. In fear, you want to run away. In shame, you want to shrink into the ground. In the sadness of lonely abandonment, you want to hide or go under the covers and withdraw. But now, if I can help you, let's say you had an alcoholic abusive father and you developed a core feeling of fear and a feeling of shame. Your tendency when bad things happen or some sort of criticism arises, is to withdraw. But now, if I can help you to feel how unfair it was that your father treated you this way and help you to feel you deserved to have a mother who protected you or a father who loved you, as you start to feel more deserving, you generate a new emotion. You generate sadness at the loss of what you felt you really needed, or you generate a sort of anger at the feeling that you were unfairly treated. Now, all this happens emotionally, not intellectually. 
So when you're in shame, you're organized by your emotion to shrink and run away. If you're organized by anger, you're organized to puff up and thrust forward. So the one emotion, you can't run away and thrust forward at the same time. So now the one emotion is going to change the other emotion. It's not going to replace it, but it's going to transform it. The two of these emotions now have to interact with each other. And this is how we get transformation by synthesis, where the two things have to somehow find a way of coordinating with each other. So you might end up not feeling angry, not feeling ashamed, but feeling proud, feeling confident, or feeling calm. But the important thing is all this is going on through your emotional brain. You're not thinking it. It's happening. So it's outside awareness. And as, as you're describing that kind of process, Les, what you're saying is the emotion that seems problematic to an individual is actually not the emotion that needs to be worked on. It's the pain underneath. Right, except in some instances the emotion that's problematic is the pain underneath. Some people come in, they're actually more in touch with themselves. They come in with, I feel shame, I feel worthless. But other people come in with uh, symptoms. I feel, I'm depressed. I have anger problems. So you've got to distinguish which kind of emotion the person is coming in with. But yes, so one process is that the emotion that's problematic is actually, you have to get past it to another core painful emotion. In other instances, the person actually brings the core painful emotion to the therapy. As you're describing this, it's something that needs to happen in therapy. It's not it's not a uh, untangling that can happen at home. Or can people learn to to do this themselves? It's difficult to do yourself because, firstly, because painful emotions are painful, we usually are trying to protect ourselves against them. So it's not easy to go there on our own. The safety of another, the accompaniment of another sort of helps us go there. The understanding of the other makes me feel safer. But also, if we're on our own, we'll usually meet our own blocks, our own ways of getting away from the emotion. We have to be very disciplined to be able to not go and eat that candy not go and go out shopping, not go to sleep. Those are all ways that our, we distract ourselves from our primary painful emotion. The therapist helps you process your emotions by keeping you focused on what's most painful and what's most poignant. So in therapy, in emotion-focused therapy, we say we try to follow the pain because the pain is a compass and it will point us towards the main concern, 
the main difficulty. And the main difficulty will be a painful emotion. The problem, both in the field and in the world, has been emotion has been treated like a single category. But you have to make distinctions between different types of emotion, not only anger, sadness, fear, and shame, but different categories of emotion. Is it your primary gut feeling? Is it your secondary reactive feeling? Is it a more manipulative feeling? And if it's your primary gut feeling, is it adaptive and helps you and gives you good information? Or like in post-traumatic stress disorder, is it no longer adaptive? Your emotional brain reacts to a door slamming. You immediately duck to hide from a bullet. Your emotional brain tells you danger is present, but there is no danger present. So your emotional brain is no longer functioning in an adaptive way. And that's when we want to bring in, we first have to go to the old painful emotion, bring it alive, and then bring in a new emotion that'll help to change it. Now, the new emotion comes when you help people identify the need that was not met. So I feel fear with my abusive father. My need was a need for safety. But as a young child, I just feel the fear. The fear gets stored in memory. And then I react with fear to, to minor situations when I'm an adult. So we first have to take you to that fear, then get what did you need, help you to feel you deserve to have safety. And then when you feel you deserve to have safety, your brain automatically starts generating. I'm angry that I didn't get the safety I deserved. I'm sad that I didn't get the safety I deserved. And often anger and sadness are of two very helpful adaptive emotions. And the emotion has been changed. And Les, both you and I know that it takes a long time for an emotion-focused therapist to, to train and become really efficient in being able to facilitate this change for clients. It, it's, it is complex, yeah? Yes, yes, it is complex. And there's a strong element of personal development. I mean, we talk about being present and being present to the other, which means being in the moment. And you have to have your finger on the emotional pulse moment by moment. So this is not a conceptual process. It's a sensitive attunement and responsiveness moment by moment to what is the other feeling. How can I facilitate the next moment? What do I do now? And I'm not thinking this, I'm reacting. But the aim is to help you get to tolerate your painful emotion. There's a piece that, that I didn't bring up in changing emotion with emotion that I think is helpful. So it's a continuation of what I was saying before. There's research on memory called memory reconsolidation which has shown that memories aren't really fixed. So people often say, what's the good of going into the past? You can't change the past. Well, actually, it's been shown that your memories change all the time, and that when a memory is activated, 
it becomes labile, it becomes open, not fixed. And so any experience that we have in the present, when the emotion is alive, so let's say I'm remembering my father and how he mistreated me, then if I am able in the present to stand up to my father or grieve that I didn't uh, have the love that I needed, it's as though I'm actually doing that in the past. So it's assimilated into the old memory as though I'm having this new experience. And then the memory changes and it goes back into memory as a different memory. So it's been shown that, in fact, memories change when they are confronted with new experience, but the memory has to be activated. So we have to actually remember it and be engrossed in it and then have a new experience in the context of the old memory. So creating a new memory from now, as it were. Exactly, exactly. Les, thank you so much for taking the time to explain some of this to us. Changing Emotion with Emotion, as I said, is your latest publication for anyone that would like to read more about this process. Dr. Leslie Greenberg, Distinguished Research Professor Emeritus from the Department of Psychology at York University in Toronto, Canada, and the primary developer of emotion-focused therapy. Thank you, Les. My pleasure. And if you'd like to find out more about this podcast, please go to our website, emotionfocused.com. And if you'd like to find out more about Emotion Awareness Day, there's a website for that as well, emotionawarenessday.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episodes. Mm-hmm.